This episode is brought to you by Revolver Studios, Portland's own homegrown recording studio and music production house, run by musicians for musicians. Revolverstudios.org. This is the Portland Film Podcast, and I'm your host, Molly Silverstein. Today, we continue our screenwriting series recorded at the 2016 Portland Film Festival with Laurie Craig leading the Writing is Rewriting workshop. Laurie Craig is particularly known for her work in family film and romantic comedy, with credits including Ella Enchanted, Polly, and Ramona and Beezus. She is currently adapting Firelight by Sophie Jordan as a television series for Sonar Entertainment. In this episode, Laurie gives insight into what happens to a script once the first draft is completed. And now, here's Laurie Craig. Good afternoon. Um, if everybody's here, I guess we can get started. All right. Uh, my name is Laurie Craig. I've been a writer in Hollywood for many years. Um, I've written dozens of uh, scripts, often four or five drafts, each script for hire. I've written a lot more that were not for hire that I didn't sell. Um, it's kind of a axiom that most deals don't make and most movies don't get made, but you keep writing and you can eventually start paying the rent. So um, today we're gonna talk about after you've finished your first draft, what do you do with it? Um, and my process is a little different in that I give it out to multiple readers even before I turn it in. A friend of mine who's also a writer described my process like laying on paint. I do many, many drafts and his process is he does this much and it gets to the same place, but I do many, many, many drafts, and then I turn it in. Um, after something is set up, uh, there's often many, many more drafts that happen. Uh, typically, the process starts with, you get it optioned or, or bought by a producer who's seen your work, and then they take it to a studio, and each one of these entities has at least one other assistant or creative executive under them. So what we'll, we'll start out with is they love it. They absolutely love it. They've been looking to do something like this. The mandate came down from on high. They had to have a movie about a widow and her five starving Siamese cats and you just hit the bullseye. Then they get a, a director attached and maybe the director's always wanted to do a movie about five starving Siamese cats, or maybe they wanted to do something about a cat and put their own stamp on it. And you're going to be getting different notes all the way along this process. Then they'll attach talent. Talent comes with their own managers, agents, with their own opinions, and so there's another layer of notes to come in after that. And basically what I've always thought is that it's grown people in a room pretending, just like when you were kids and you were like, oh, you be the mommy and I'll be the daddy and we're playing house and you're going across the bridge. You walk down any hallway in a studio and you will hear through open doors, ooh, what if he accidentally finds the gun on page 37 and then she doesn't know that he saved her and people are like, yeah, yeah, that could work. So it's basically people that are having opinions. Um, oftentimes I've sat through seminars where people go, well, we just need to make it the best and there's some magical process that happens where you know, you're, just, you're just doing it for the craft and, and the art of it all. And it's an opinion, okay? Somebody else has a different idea what they wanna do, 
that's different than yours. Some people are smarter. Some of their opinions are better. There's many different ways to skin a cat. And I guess my big note to you guys is you have to be gentle to yourself, but ruthless with your material because they are going to just beat the shit out of it once you are lucky enough to get it set up. I wanted to read something that's a standard contract, writer for contract for hire. And this is, this is boilerplate in anything that you would ever sign. The producer shall have the sole and exclusive right throughout the universe in all languages and in perpetuity to utilize and to exploit all or any part of the picture and all or any parts of any material contained therein or prepared therefore, whether or not used therein in any version, by any means and in any media, whether now known or hereafter developed. Okay? So I have very little patience for friends of mine that are going around going, they changed my masterpiece, they truncated my vision. If you sign this and you take their money, you have to do what they say. And that is not often easy um, because sometimes what they say doesn't make very much sense or it could be 180 degrees from what you thought you were doing. It's plastic, it's words on paper, it's not a human child whose life is in danger, you have to kind of get over that. And it really is hard. And you really have to, if you're going to last in the business, get a thick skin on the outside, but keep that kind of warm, mushy, emotional part that, that you need in order to create. Um, I've had that experience many times when I was first starting out, where I'd, I'd go in and I'd have a meeting and I had a story where you know someone was questing after ages and ages to get back together with their love. And they, the studio bought it, it was a big deal. I was the golden child. They hired a director. My first meeting with the director, he said, I think they should meet at the end and then go their separate ways. And my mouth dropped open, I'm like, he's kidding, right? and everybody looked at me stone-faced, so that was like politically not the right move to say. And I didn't get along very well with the director after that. Um, just little tricks that I can share with you when you go in for a meeting, they're always on a call. They will always keep you waiting in the lobby. Their assistant will come down and say, can we get you anything? She's stuck on a call. Say yes and order water, because they have water bottles all the time. I made the mistake of ordering tomato juice one time. And I was wearing white pants, and you know the rest of the story. And you also want to have a prop in your hand. You want to be able to say, when somebody has an idea, OK, that could work. You don't ever want to be grimacing and have not have your hand a prop of some kind that you can use. Um, often they'll not have read exactly what you wrote very carefully. So very early on, I would be given a note like, well, I think he should introduce himself to her on page 12. And I stupidly said, oh, he, he actually does. It's, you know, it's right here on page 12, thereby embarrassing the executive at Warner Brothers in the room in front of their assistants. And they went, oh, well, let me look. Oh, well, see, you didn't really call that, you know, and I had to write three-eighths of a page more to have the guy stupidly and clumsily introduce himself 
obviously, to the girl. Um, and that's a very hard note to learn because just only a couple of years ago, I was hired to rewrite a project, and the executive said, I, think, I don't think we should have the mobsters in there. That's kind of an old trope. I mean, I, I really think that we should cut the mobsters out. I should have just said good note because I, I was given a draft that didn't even have mobsters in it. It would have been like, okay, got that one off the list. And that, again, I had embarrassed this person in the room. Um, I had a friend who was also, I don't know, something about Warner Brothers. He had this script that was perennially in development. Many directors came and went. 10, 12 years, he would, you know, like an annuity. Every once in a while, he'd get hired. They'd hire somebody else to write it. They'd get, they'd get him back to rewrite that guy. He was at a meeting, and new director had come aboard, and he had all these very specific notes. And as my friend is sitting there, he's realizing he's working off a draft behind what the most recent draft was. And everything that he's asking to change, my friend had already changed in the, in the most current draft. And he stupidly said, oh, I think, what draft do you have? Because he could have just taken the money and gone to Hawaii for eight weeks and turned in the same thing and done all the notes. Um, when you are called in for a project, it's usually, there's, there's, there's two times. There's times to just take in information, which is basically what I call shut up and listen. And then there's times when you're called in and you have to stand and deliver and do your little dance in front of them. And that's true in life. Like if somebody's going to give you advice, your, your romantic partner, your kid, your parent, whatever, there's times when you just need to hear them, hear what they're saying. Don't go, oh, yeah, but we could. Just listen. And then there's times when it's time for you to give back. And maybe you're even saying the same thing they said to you, but it's now your call and response. It's the time for you to give back to them. Um, that is so true in, in writing. Um, and it's very, depending on the, on the job, sometimes it's quite formalized. You'll get, you'll get an assignment. You will have time to like call up or feel out what they want, talk to the producer, what's the third rail, who's got this bugaboo, who wants this in it, who wants that. Then it's time for you to go in and pitch what you would do with this project. Then you turn in. Then you're going to get eight. 10, 12 pages of notes back that say, we're very happy with the direction that this script has taken. However, we feel that their work needs to be done on blah, 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 blah. And it may mean a 180 degree turn from what you were first told to do. I had a project several years ago with an A-list director where I was hired to rewrite this very earnest new age love story that was kind of a supernatural thing where the couple had never met before, and they were dreaming about each other until they met on the very last page of the script. So it was sort of like the old Lelouch movie, and now my love. And I was hired to do true to this tone. They wanted some changes. We changed the location. Earnest, earnest, earnest. Do sweet, sweetness and light. Turned it in, and everybody kind of went, eh, this is kind of boring. I'm like, yeah, you're right. And, and the director said, well, what if they met on page 30 instead of the last page? And I went, okay, I'll see you in a couple months. And by doing that, 
I not only had to change the structure, obviously, because after they met, more stuff had to happen. It ended up even changing the genre. So it went from this very earnest, light, you know, sweet thing to kind of a sex farce. It was like a hard R, raunchy comedy where they were having, you know, really graphic dreams about each other until they meet and they try and act out the dream. And of course, the woman has like the sweetness and light, you know, and the other guy is more hardcore and everything that can possibly go wrong goes wrong. And it was, you know, an example of like, if I had sued myself for credit, I wouldn't have been able to get credit. Like I had changed it so much. Um, the other thing that often happens is studio notes can be quite lengthening. So if some gag worked once, They'll be like, oh, can we have that again? That thing that he did that was so funny, can you do it three more times? They're very seldom cutting things. They're, they're kind of bogging it down a lot. So I call it the second draft blues, which is you can't just add what they're asking for. Have things that you, you know, like have ballast, like you know, an old sailing ship. Have things you can throw overboard. Always have a little wiggle room so that you can cut stuff out if you're gonna be adding things. Um, I always try to write the third draft before the second draft, if, if that makes any sense, because second drafts are really boring and sloggy and it's got everything in it but the kitchen sink. The third draft, usually you've kind of honed in on what the story's supposed to be and it's tight and it's humming along and it's pretty good. So if you can, write the third draft first. What else have we got here? Oftentimes there's um, a location change. I did something that was set in the Amazon and the studio head came to his senses and went, oh hell no, we don't wanna go to the Amazon. We need a body of water with a cliff. And what about Canada? I'm like, okay. So it ended up being the St. Lawrence Seaway and, and Quebec City. And it, you know, lots of adjustments were made but it really didn't change the story very much at all. Um, I was fortunate enough to sell something many years ago to DreamWorks. It was an original. It was my baby. I really loved the story. It was this very sweet developmental thing about a talking parrot and it was kind and it was funny but it wasn't rude. And then it, it was sold to DreamWorks and they booted me out of there really quickly and five or six different writers took a whack at it. Two weeks before the start of principal photography, the producer who had always kind of been on my side called me back in. And I came to the read through, which is where everybody sits at a long table and they read it through. And it was this cut and paste monstrosity where things had been cut, setups were for the joke were in there, but the payoff wasn't. There were characters that hadn't been established that were wandering in and you didn't know who they were. It was like 180 pages, it was a mess. And I said, okay, we can fix this. And I basically lived in the motorhome all summer, rewriting it as they were shooting it. So people would come running in going, we need a transitional line. I'm like, okay, when? Uh, we're shooting in five minutes. I'm like, okay. Um, I would be on the phone. The director would be like, we need like some dialogue. They're walking down a staircase. It's a lot longer than we thought it was gonna be. You know, Fill in some dialogue of them talking while they get down the stairs. There was an executive that was like bound and determined to rewrite, the, I called it the Minerva scene. I'll never name another character Minerva as long as I live because Minerva changed 
nine, ten different ways. They built these elaborate sets, hundreds of thousands of dollars for the Minerva scene. Sometimes she was nice, sometimes she was evil, sometimes she was rich, sometimes she was poor. They ended up just not even shooting a single frame. They just cut it and it went from the scene before the Minerva scene to the scene after the Minerva scene and you never knew the difference. So I even turned it into a verb. It's like I don't want to Minerva or get minerva anymore. Um, other things that can happen, we had uh, a minor child where I'd written a very lyrical scene where she was supposed to be on a roof line in the middle of the day and there were clouds overhead and it was quite beautiful. And the production manager said, oh hell no, we're not putting a minor child up on top of a roof. We're doing it in a sound stage with mats and nets and all that stuff. And so it doesn't look fake, it's gonna be nighttime. So a scene that had happened during the day had to happen at night and then I had to figure out a way I call squaring the circle make it work. Why is she up on the roof at night when everybody's in bed asleep? She had to come up with some urgent region that she had to go out there then. Um, and it, it was fine. I mean, I, I didn't love it. It didn't turn out any at, at all as good as I'd hoped it would, but it didn't totally suck. Um, and then, the, and I, again, I was let go after they finished principal photography and they brought in a lot of writers. And the because it was a talking parrot, there was a lot of voiceover work that they did. And they turned the bird into an asshole. He, he was saying rude things like, gee, aren't we getting a little old to bathe together? And like, fuck you, grandma, and like horrible sounding dialogue. Just before they released the movie, they came to their senses and so softened it up quite a bit so that I was like, phew. Um, the other thing that happens often is they'll change the age of the protagonist. So like I was hired to rewrite a story that was, um, uh, a kid, I think he was 12 or something. I had to make him a 35-year-old man. Um, and then I found out later they went back to making them a teenager. Uh, sometimes they'll start off as older people and they'll make them younger. Um, sometimes they'll even change the, the genders. Uh, somebody that they'd want is available. Guess what? They wanna do this, you're gonna have to change you know, the role and adjust as needed. Um, a lot of things that happen too are about tone. Um, I've had a couple of projects where there were these beloved children's books and my mandate was stay true to the book. You have to stay true to the book. And then they would realize that the book's pretty old fashioned. And so uh, like in Ella Enchanted, Harvey Weinstein saw Shrek and went, I want more of that. So then that got all adjusted, you know, and turned into something completely different. Um, I've lately been doing a lot of animation work and in terms of rewriting animation, oh boy, that's like herding cats because the, the storyboard artists pitch different gags all the time throughout the whole process. So you'll be in a room and there'll be pencil test sketches of different gags that have maybe nothing at all to do with the story, but it's incredibly funny looking. Like, oh, we gotta get that, that ant eater, you know, let's make him a mute, that's hysterical. And suddenly like, this character that was just a walk-on in the background is like a running main character. Um, and that also really has a tendency to focus your uh, attention in terms of like, what's this really about? Because animation takes years and hundreds of millions of dollars to make, so they don't really want to put something out there if they're not 100% satisfied with it. So they'll do many drafts with many, many writers and often you'll be in a room with 
six, seven different people and everybody's got a different opinion and you have to please the person that writes the check the most, but maybe you can't get the director to do their best work unless you give them the thing that they've, you know, always since they were 12 wanted to say or the, the, the symbolism that the actor wants to have in there or the, often with animation too, the, the actors come in and they'll just ad lib stuff and they said something incredibly funny and so you have to go back and reverse engineer why they said it. So you need to set up the gag because you've got this great gag. So you have to be flexible, I guess is my main point. I've worked with producers who were such control freaks that they would literally on the phone go over every line of description. Don't say around the corner, say at the corner. Stuff that wouldn't even ever show up, nobody says it, but such control freaks till six in the morning sometimes. And you just have to like, I don't know, put it on speaker and you know, look at, at Amazon or something while they're going on and on. Um, what else? I talked about changing ages. I did a, um, I did a script about two years ago where one of my, my readers who I really rely on and trust said, you know that 80 year old Korean woman that's so great with the main character? What if she was like a 40 year old Russian and she was the love interest? And I went, huh, good note. Tore the whole thing up and it actually worked a lot better. Um, what else can I tell you? Oh, tricks for length. There's something that I call shoe leather. I got this from a producer one time. There's often a lot of fat you can cut out of stuff. If it's, if it's just getting from place to place, if it's just using up shoe leather, get rid of it. Don't spend half a page opening the door, pushing the elevator button, hurrying down the stairs, getting to the cab. Just get there. Um, a lot of times beginning writers tend to overwrite and you don't need as much description as you think you do, especially in film. It's not prose. You know, we're not the poet laureate of North America. We're just trying to get them from place to place. Uh, another thing that's handy is if you're having a dialogue scene and somebody asks a question, maybe you don't answer the question. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe there's a bit of business or a, 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 a sideways glance or something like that. So when you're going down the page, sometimes silence is, is more explicit than saying, you know, what the answer to the question was. You don't have to always say the subtext out loud. You know, you don't have to have somebody say, you don't really love me anymore, do you? Well, as a matter of fact, Frida, I've been having these second thoughts. You can, you can have the answer to that question with her saying, don't you love me, and him like filing his nails. Um, one of my pet peeves is having a scene that tells you about the scene that's gonna come up next. So do not have a scene where they say, we're gonna meet Fred and Charlie, and then we're gonna get the fishing can, and then we're gonna go to the lake. And then you see them with the fishing can at the lake doing the thing they said they were gonna do. And then you have a scene following that going, wasn't that great that we were at the lake together? Try and not repeat yourselves. Um, I call them also, um, they're these admin scenes and I, I can tell when I'm in the middle of an admin scene where I find a character saying to another character, do you want a sandwich? 
if there's not that much going on so that they can take time and ask each other, how you feeling? Hungry? You want a sandwich? It's not really serving your purpose. So you have to ask yourself, what's it doing here? What's the reason it's here? Is it in the right place? Maybe it's too intense. Maybe it needs to be later. Or maybe it's not intense enough. Maybe we're running for the exit and we're kind of taking our time and sitting down and you know doing an admin scene when really we're really racing for a curtain. Um, another thing I find that's helpful is to read your dialogue out loud. Does it sound like something that somebody would say? If it's too complex and hard to say, unless that's your character, you know, it's not realistic. Um, and just remember that, you know, you can always copy and paste it into the junkyard. It'll stay there. So you can, you can be quite brutal in taking stuff out. Um, be ruthless and challenge all of those, you know, those writing tropes that you, you see over and over again. But also know when they work. I mean, there's, there's a reason that stuff kind of keeps coming up, you know, because they're kind of handy to have. Ticking clock. You know, like, is there an urgent reason for something? It doesn't have to be a nuclear bomb, but it can be something that's pressing on the character's desires, something that's in their way. Um, it's often handy to have, like, signposts of the journey, like Stations of the Cross, like, where are we in this story? Um, early on, it's always good to have some sort of proof of concept scene that's like, oh, this is really going to be good. This is all right, I'm going to sit and watch this. I, I'm interested in this. Um, if there's something you really, really like, it's handy to kind of set it up, have running gags or the rule of threes, you know, they're set up, set up, payoff. Um, and then just remember that it's never going to be yours ever again. <laughs> you kind of have to be proud of being a synthesizer. You take this and that and this and you make something else out of it. It's always handy to take your own note, get ahead of the curve a little bit. If you know what you want to do, and you can make it sound like it was their brilliant idea, and of course he preys upon them for whatever the note was that you could actually execute, that's also politically very happy. But it's just to remember at the end of the day, it's, it's opinions. It's people being paid to have opinions about your work. And there's nothing magic about that. Uh, art is subjective. What I find is not subjective is good business manners and treating people with respect. That's the only thing I ever get my nose out of joint out uh, anymore about is if somebody's just rude. But everything else, it's just what you think is good and what the other person thinks is good. And maybe there's a compromise where you can meet in the middle. All righty. Thank you very much, guys. You've been great. So much fun. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Portland Film Podcast. Join us again next week as we continue our screenwriting series from the 2016 Portland Film Festival. If you enjoyed this week's episode, you can subscribe on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or visit us at theportlandfilmpodcast.com. Portland Film Podcast is a Portland Film Festival production, produced and edited by Misty Eddy. Our associate producer is Sean Connolly, sound engineer Paul Dillon, and I'm Molly Silverstein. See you next time.